relationships. The fact of the matter is all of us have it, and so this is applicable to all of us. And so I welcome you, and I trust that we'll find uh, help from God's Word on this most important issue. Before we get into the material that's in your notebook, I want to call your attention to the back cover because it has some events listed there. And I want to make you aware of those events and avail yourself of any of those that you think might be helpful to you. But the first of them begins this evening. You see at the very top there, tonight at 4 o'clock, our men are invited to go to Southgate to the MGR, MGR, MJR Theater and watch the uh, Courageous movie. And uh, it is very fitting for men. It's, uh, it's a, a movie produced by uh, Christians, has a very good theme to it. And so we're taking time to invite our men to that. The tickets are discounted uh, from what the cost is at the door at the theater. They're $5 because we're taking a group. And you can pick those up at the uh, resource center before you leave today. And then we'll just meet at the uh, theater at uh, 4 o'clock. If you can stay afterwards, those who can are going to go to dinner. But that's for all of our guys today at 4. This coming Tuesday, you see there, at 10 o'clock at the Erie Orchard is a day out for moms and their little ones or grandmas or grandpas and their little ones to go to, uh, uh, to the Erie Orchard. So just meet there. There's no fee to get in. There's stuff you can buy there if you so choose. Every Wednesday, we meet for the series of classes that you see listed on the back cover. And we have classes for all ages. And so we welcome any of you to, to come to that, and you'll find something that will be of help to you if you do. But they meet at the Patrick Henry Middle School, not here. 7 o'clock every Wednesday at Patrick Henry Middle School. That's just around the corner from here on Hall Road uh, between Van Horn and West. And then every Friday, every Friday morning, guys, uh, at 6 a.m., our men meet at the Allen Park Community Center for our men's fraternity quest for authentic manhood uh, that's been going for four weeks now. It's been very helpful so far to our guys. If you can roll out of the rack and arrange work for that, it's an hour and a half, 6, 6 a.m. to 7.30, but very helpful. You're all invited. But I needed to tell you this one for sure. The next item on there is this coming Friday, and it says we have a hayride and bonfire at Tom and Tammy's place. But we can't have that. We can't do that this Friday. We found out this morning that their place has been flooded with water and don't think it's going to be quite ready by Friday, and so we're going to have to postpone that. We're going to have to look at the calendar to see what an alternate date will be. So I wanted to make sure that nobody looks at that, shows up at the Burkharts, and then uh, nobody else is there, okay? So we'll uh, let you know what the alternate date is going to be. But avail yourself of any of the rest of those because uh, there's something there for everybody and I'm sure will be helpful to you. One of my favorite things is to be able to talk with my girls. And my girls are 13 and 16. And I enjoy talking to them. And for the most part, they enjoy talking to me. And at least they feign uh, interest uh, very well. My 13-year-old, I, I, I like talking to them most of the time, vast majority of the time. But my 13-year-old, I'm convinced that her tongue is somehow connected to the gear shift on my van so that when it goes into reverse, her tongue activates immediately. We'll be doing the hustle and bustle, the Chinese fire drill of getting ready for school. And we finally think we've got everything together, and we're in. 
and I put it in reverse. And as soon as it goes into reverse, she goes, wait. Uh. What? <laughs> Lainey, do you have her sister? Lainey, do you have my makeup? Or do you have my headband? Or where's my lunch? Or where are my clothes for volleyball? Or where are my clothes in general? <laughs> where's my head? And this happens every morning. Reverse, something comes out of her mouth. So most of the time, I like, I like talking to them. We talk a lot, and I, and I think they enjoy it. And often, I'll be waxing eloquent about something that I think is really important. And usually, Annie, the 13-year-old, will uh, say, if they're not quite following what I'm saying, she will say, well, that was random. <laughs> random. Yeah. And now it's just been shortened to just random. <laughs> now I take it all in good stride. But what it means is what you have just said is not connected to anything we've been talking about. In fact, dear Father, from what we can tell, what you just said has no relationship to anything in the known universe. Now, in my, in my world, it makes perfect sense. But they know that I am truly capable of saying something that's completely disconnected. And so it appears random and, in fact, might be random in their minds. Now, what does that have to do with what we've gathered for? this series on making peace, how to overcome conflict. Everybody here has some form of con experience, some form of conflict. Many of you have come because you're having a specific conflict. And I wonder if you see that conflict, that situation, as random. Because if you see it as random, disconnected, then that can very easily lead to a feeling of chaos. It's out of control. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if anything good is going to come out of this. It's out of my control. It appears for everything I can tell to be random and chaotic, no sense of it, no purpose in it. And my guess is that describes a number of you. You're in a relationship, you're in a situation, and you can't see where it's going. And you also feel a sense that you can't control where it's going and thus have a helpless feeling about it. And that helpless feeling can easily degenerate into a, into a hopeless feeling. Now suppose that what appears to be random to my girls is really purposeful, and intentional, and even helpful. Now, with my stuff, that's not always the case. But sometimes it is. Sometimes there's a method to my madness. Sometimes there's a reason for what I said that once I clue them into the reason, they'll go, oh, maybe it wasn't as random as it at first appeared. Now, what if I could guarantee to you that whatever your situation that brought you here, whatever relationship that you're going through that has this conflict, 
that you have thought of as, as random, perhaps chaotic, and, and maybe even degenerating into helpless, if I could guarantee to you it's not random. As a matter of fact, forgive the grammar, there ain't nothing in your life that's random. But how do I, well, how do I know, how do I know that? I can make that guarantee because there's a purpose. And I can guarantee that there's a purpose because there's someone behind the conflict. There's someone who overrules and is, in a fancy word, sovereign over the situation. It appears helpless to you, random to you, chaotic to you. But it's in perfect control of the sovereign one. Your spouse, perhaps, is the source of your conflict. Or perhaps your kids, or perhaps a teacher. Or just perhaps your circumstances are causing, in general, are causing this feeling of chaos and out of control. Now, I want you to, I want you to hear this. Hear this carefully. Your spouse, your kids, that teacher or your circumstances in general, are not in control. Well, if they're not, who is? And if you'll open to the first page in your notebook, it's the reason that we have started this series, and it's the very first page, saying this. Introductory page. God desires. So the assumption of this series is going to be that God is not only not absent from your situation, but he's rather involved in your situation. And because he is involved, the individual actors are not the ones who are in control. And so you don't have to feel that it is helpless because my spouse to this point has never cooperated, that teacher has never cooperated, the circumstances may never change. But that spouse, that teacher, those kids, those circumstances are not what is in control. God desires. And God is, and I don't mean to be flippant, God is the X factor here. And the factor that very often we fail to consider. And because we fail to consider the role that God plays in all of our circumstances, including our relationships, we then say it's out of control, it's random, it's hopeless. God desires, and God desires this, that we have peace with Him and with each other. And yet many of our relationships are marked by bitterness and hostility and resentment and anger. And those emotions, if left unchecked, then can overflow into biting words and even vengeful actions. And so the question is, how can we restore peace to a broken relationship? What does God have to say about dealing with those difficult people that He allows, He allows to come into our path? About dealing with wrongs committed in the past, about granting forgiveness, seeking reconciliation. That's what this six-week course, then, is going to be about. So I encourage you, to stay with us for the full six weeks. And we will see how it is that God uses conflict ultimately for good purposes. 
good purposes that right now you perhaps can't even see. So take a look with me then at the first page of our notes. Staying on top of conflict. Now, that phrase is chosen purposely, staying on top, because you see the slope there, you see the arc. And the idea is, if you are going to get a handle on conflict, proper perspective on it, then it's going to come from being on the top of that curve, of that arc. So staying on top of conflict means being on the top portion of that slope. And you don't want to slide down to the left side and you don't want to slide off to the right side. You want to be on the top. Now what I'd like to do is take some time then to go through the uh, issues that are addressed on the left, on the right, and in the middle so you understand the slippery slope of conflict because we have it on the next several pages for you and we'll refer to it. During our, during our series. You see on the left side of that, of that uh, slope, the extreme left side, there's that blackened area, and it says escape responses. And so we're engaged in conflict, and one way to respond to the conflict is to escape. It's a very common reaction to it, to escape. And there are three categories of escape. And those are listed in that blackened area. Denial, flight, and even ultimately suicide is a way to escape. And so on your first page there, we have, we have those listed. Let me just make a few comments about each of those. Escaping the conflict. One reaction is to, and one wrong reaction, is to try to escape. And to do that through perhaps denial. One way to escape from a conflict is to pretend that no problem exists. Another way is to refuse to do what should be done to resolve the conflict properly. These bring only temporary relief and usually make matters worse. And so someone might say, and maybe you say this, you know, I don't like, I don't like confrontation. Well, you know, you would have to be demented to like confrontation. I've actually been told. But Kenny, you like confrontation. <laughs> and, and then I think, you know, you'd have to be demented. So this person just called me demented. <laughs> and what they mean is, because I'm willing to engage in confrontation, I must like it because for most of us, and let's be honest, what most of us do, we only do the things we like to do. We don't do the hard stuff. It's hard for me to do the hard stuff. There are times when I don't do the hard stuff. But when I do, it's still hard. And the fact that I do it doesn't mean that I like it or that I'm demented. It's because it has to be done. But for many of us, it has been our automatic response to avoid the hard thing and simply say, I don't like confrontation. Well, the truth is none of us likes confrontation. But sometimes it has to be done or I don't like to debate, or I don't like to argue. Another approach to escaping through denial is to have various forms of sweeping it under the rug. I know someone whose habit is, when there is a conflict, to simply try to find in the, in the conflict anything they can that the other party did remotely wrong. 
And then they can say, well, we were both wrong. So let's just move on. Now, you know, they may have taken a gunshot at your head. And you may have left the table, the dinner table, a mess. But they equate those two. We were both wrong. So let's just move on. And, of course, it's dangerous, sometimes literally dangerous, to leave it at that. But it's, a, it's an opportunity to escape through denial. So ask yourself, is that your habit? Many, many people fall into that response to conflict, escaping by avoiding. You can escape it, you know, a bunch of ways. This list could go on forever, so have to, we'll move on. But that's what uh, man caves are sometimes about in homes. You all know what I'm talking about? Yes. <laughs> places, where, places where men repair to just, you know, get alone get away, avoid, right? Um, I've just got to have my downtime, but my downtime ends up expanding to like all my time so I can get away. How about the bottle? A substance to escape? Lots of escape responses, all of them bad. Denial is one of them. Flight, then, is another. Another way to escape from a conflict is to run away. It may take the form of ending a relationship, quitting a job, filing for divorce, leaving a church. It might be legitimate in some situations. Maybe you have to get out of harm's way, for instance. But in most cases, it only postpones a proper solution to the problem. Now, the only way that flight works is if the problem with your action or reaction is external. Let me say that again. The only way that flight works is if the problem with your action or reaction is something external. Because if it's external, well, then I can just change the external environment. I leave. I flee. I mean, if the problem is completely my spouse then getting a new spouse will fix everything. If the problem is my idiot boss, then getting a new boss might fix everything. Here's what I found. All bosses are idiots. I'm just cluing you in. Until you become the boss. I found that out too. And then everybody thinks you're an idiot. All the people you used to talk with around the water cooler about what an idiot the boss is now think you're an idiot. But anyhow. So if the problem is my spouse, get a new spouse. The problem is my boss, get a new, get a new boss. The problem is my job, get a new job. The problem is my hairdo, get a new hairdo. <laughs> Whatever. And we're constantly trying to change our environment thinking that these external modifications are going to fix the problem. It only works if indeed it's an external problem. But what if your actions or reactions are actually an inside job? Well, now what? Now I go to the job, but I still carry the same internal issue with me at that new job or with that new spouse. We're going to see that God says 
the first place we each have to look for our actions and reactions is internal. There are external factors. We'll see those. But the first place we're to look is internal. So flight, fleeing, getting away. But if it's an inside job, you take it with you. And then, ultimately, that can lead to the ultimate escape of suicide. And I'll just say this. I don't know everyone here. I don't know your circumstances. I don't know if you've had a loved one who perhaps was in that situation. So I want to be very careful in what I say. But unless someone has had uh, a chemical imbalance, something that has affected their ability to in decision-making, if someone is rational in their decision-making and they choose to take their life, then they are taking a selfish way out of a difficult situation. And so if you've contemplated that, please understand that there are going to be people left in your wake. People who will have to deal with the aftermath of that. And so, friend, I'm encouraging you, by, by all means, avoid taking a selfish escape. And let's look together over the next few weeks as what God says, at what God says about how to handle the issue. And so there are escape responses. And then the next category of responses are attack responses. And those are on the right side of the slope. You see that? Again, the slope is up at the top there. But now on the right side, you have these various forms of attack. The three responses found on the right side are often used by people who are more interested in winning a conflict than in preserving a relationship. And the first, then, of the three attack responses is assault. Now, the assault might be physical, but more common is the assault is, is verbal, or the assault is passive-aggressive, cold shoulder, avoiding you as if you don't exist and don't matter. These, are all, these would all fall under the assault approach to reacting to a, a conflict. Now, here's what all of those have in common. Whether assault or litigation or ultimately murder. What all of them have in common is this. They seek to attack the person rather than the problem. And you find this in many of your conflicts, don't you? That it winds up being an, pardon the fancy term, an ad hominem attack. It's Latin for against the person, to the person. And what all the attack responses have in common is that they fail to address the problem and they focus on the individual. So think about your conversations or your arguments in whatever conflict or conflicts you've got going on. Do you find yourself immediately going to the person, you, you always, you never? You're attacking the person rather than addressing the problem. Or does the person you're dealing with resort to that right away? In either case, it's an attack response, and it can be identified by focusing, in, rather than on the problem, focusing on the person. And then take a look at the third category, large category, up at the top of the slope. Next page. Conciliation responses. 
and we define this as staying on top of, getting on top of conflict, staying on top of conflict, meaning staying on top of that slope. This is where you want to be. And these are the right kinds of responses, peacemaking kinds of responses. And the key to having peacemaking responses is the gospel. The true peacemaker is guided and motivated and empowered by the gospel. Now, what is that? It's the good news that God has forgiven all our sins and made peace with us through the death and resurrection of his son. Through Christ now, he has also enabled us to break the habit of escaping from conflict or attacking others. And has empowered us to become peacemakers who can promote genuine justice and reconciliation. And you see six peacemaking type responses at the top of that slope. But the key to all of that is the gospel. Because of the good news listed there that God in Jesus Christ has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Dying on the cross so that our sins could be paid for, so that we could have a relationship now with God. The Bible says that prior to coming to him through the cross of Jesus, we are, and it uses this language, we are his enemies. Did you know that? It says that. It says that the, the natural mind is is hostile toward God. It uses that sort of military, uh, antagonistic kind of language. That's the relationship between natural men and women and God. But Jesus has come to change that relationship. And his death on the cross means now that I can have a renewed, restored relationship with God. The relationship that mankind was made to have at the beginning of the Bible in the garden that was broken by sin, I can now have and you can now have because of Jesus. But not only that, it says in that paragraph, we then are empowered now to make that kind of peace with others who are at odds with, with us. Now how so? I can now forgive because I know how much I've been forgiven. I can now forgive because I know how much I've been forgiven. In Matthew chapter 18 in your Bible, if you just care to jot it down, Matthew chapter 18, verse 25 and following, Jesus told the parable, told a story. Many of you are familiar with it, with a man who was, who was owed a few dollars. Or actually, he, uh, he, he owed, he was thrown in jail for owing a large amount of money. And he begged for forgiveness. And he was released because of the forgiveness of the one to whom he owed the debt. A large debt, a debt beyond what anything he could pay. And he was shown this mercy, was given this forgiveness. He's released from his debt. But Jesus says this man immediately went out and found one that owed him a relative few dollars. And this man took him by the shirt collar and he said, pay me all that you owe me or you'll go into prison. You see, this man was forgiven much, but was unwilling to forgive little. And everyone who has come to God through the costly, the infinitely costly death of Jesus Christ has been given much, 
has been forgiven an infinite amount. Now here, friend, because you've been forgiven, you are now empowered to forgive the relative little offense against you. This is so important that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. Jesus says, if you will not forgive others, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. But those who have come to Jesus have been forgiven an infinite amount at infinite cost to the Lord Jesus Christ. And because we've been forgiven, we are now empowered to forgive. We have a whole lesson in this series on forgiveness. But for now, understand the gospel is the key to peace because since I've been forgiven, I can forgive. Further, since I have been loved, I can love. I've been loved by the God of the universe. And so, in a very feeble way, I can now show love to those who wrong me, to those who don't cooperate, to those who just want to make life difficult for me. Because I have been loved by God, now I am empowered to show that love to others. And hear this. Because... God is in control. In the midst of this difficult relationship, I can maintain control. Let me say again. Because God is in control, in the midst of this difficult relationship, I can maintain control. If we're honest, you find yourself losing control, don't you? And the reason you lose control is because you think it's out of control. But if you know, if you know that there ain't nothing random, that it's not out of control, then you can keep control. Let me put it another way. I have said in counseling many times over the years, whatever causes you to lose control controls you. So you've got that person who <laughs> he just knows how to push my buttons. What that means is he knows how to make me lose control. Or she knows how to make me lose control. They know where the raw spots are and they hit them with their verbal cues and then I lose control. And do you know what in effect is happening? As you lose control, it is further proof to that individual that they control you. Which, if they are really evil, just ags them on. I'm in control here. An antagonist hates most somebody who does not respond to their antagonisms. I know this from absolute personal experience. Within my own extended family and when I finally got it through my thick skull that I was being controlled by the manipulations of someone else and more important I did what scripture says in Proverbs 26 and verse 5 
Do not answer a fool according to his foolishness. Now, I, ne- I wouldn't necessarily recommend you quote that to them. <laughs> Why aren't you talking to me? Because I don't answer a fool according to his foolishness. Okay? But I do recommend you follow that God-given advice. And when, you, and when you do that, it actually drives the antagonist crazy. Why? I'm no longer in control of this. I'm pushing the buttons and nothing's happening. But because God is in control, I can now keep control. And to the extent that I lose control, someone or something else is controlling me. And the gospel is the key then to peacemaking. We will return to the gospel uh, as part of our series. So now if you'll take a look at the page, and forgive me, I don't have the page number here that says a biblical definition of conflict. Roman numeral 2. Just turn a couple of pages. Page 6. Thank you. And so now let's look at a working definition of, of conflict. Conflict is a difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. In a nutshell, that's what it is. A difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. And what many of us sitting in this room and standing here need is to adjust our goals and desires in the relationship. See, if your goal in the relationship is to make sure that the other party knows you're right. Well, (laughs) how long might that go on? That's your goal. It's being frustrated because it ain't happening, at least to this point. But I'm going to keep beating my head against the wall trying it. That's my goal. Or if my goal is just to win in general. But I've got an antagonist who's just going to keep, keep going with it. There's no end game here. I can wind up being extremely frustrated with that. Many of us need to adjust our goals and desires in the midst of this difficult relationship. We're going to see what our goals and desires really ought to be in the midst of conflict. This definition is broad enough to encompass run-of-the-mill variations in taste, things like one spouse wanting a vacation in the mountains while the other prefers the waterfront, but also hostile arguments. Fights, quarrels, lawsuits, church divisions, so on. All of them involve the same thing. A difference of purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. Now the Bible gives a number of possible reasons, causes for, for conflict. We have those listed for you there along with some, some passages. But notice point B under Roman numeral 3. Conflict is not necessarily bad. Conflict is not necessarily bad. Some differences are natural and even beneficial. But I can actually modify that for you to say conflict is not necessarily bad. And I want to end with this. To give you the guarantee that conflict can actually be used for your good. Conflict can actually be used for your good. Now, how do, I, how do I know this? Remember we started out, is it random? 
Is this thing that you're in just outside of, outside of anyone's control? It appears to be outside of your control, but is it outside of anyone's control? And I suggested it to you, even though it's outside of your control, it doesn't mean it's outside of God's control. And God says very explicitly in Holy Scripture this, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Romans eight twenty-eight. God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. <laughs> now there's a verse for you. God works how many things? That includes your lousy relationship. Your circumstance, God works all things together for good, but he does so to those who love him. Now, how is that? How is it that God does it specially for those who love him? Let me give you an illustration of that. Because God is actually sovereignly involved in everything that's going on in his world, in the lives of everybody from the late Saddam Hussein to anybody you want to name, criminals, politicians, I repeat myself, <laughs> whether they know Christ or not. He's involved in that. He's, he's sovereign over that. He's, he's orchestrating that. So how is it that he specially now works all things together for good for those who love him? How is that? Here's how. Remember I was talking about my girls, and, you know, I say the stuff, and the girls say random because it seems random to them. But, you know, a lot of times, not all the time because sometimes I really am random, but a lot of times, if they let me explain... They didn't say, ah, I see. And God has explained what he is doing in his world and in your life. But only those who love him listen. It is those who love him who listen to him give the context for what seems to be this random situation in your life. And it is only those who love him who have ears to hear the explanation that he gives. So that in the midst of the difficult relationship, circumstance, whatever it is, they can now see what he's actually doing. He's doing all the stuff in his world in general, but only those who love him and thus listen can see it. God works all things together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. I'll make one last observation about that and we're done. Some of you have heard that verse quoted in the King James Bible. I quoted from another version. The King James Bible says of that verse, all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But what I quote, it doesn't say all things work together for good. It says God works all things together for good. And you see there's a really big difference there. All things work together for good, but here's the thing about things. 
they don't work by themselves. There's actually a subject to that verb. God works. So the things are not random. The things are in the hand of God who is working those things for his purpose. And so if you came in here saying, it's chaotic, it's hopeless, maybe even it's helpless, that's all because somewhere in your thinking you have the idea that your situation is random. And I'm here, here to tell you, dear friend, there's nothing in your life that's random. And if you come to Jesus, you'll be able to see, you'll be able to get a glimpse of what God is doing in those circumstances. That's our desire for you. We want to help you in a practical way as you come to him and you see through a new set of lenses. We'll continue next week. Let's ask the Lord to give us a safe week so that we can come back together next Lord's Day, all right?